The MLB trade deadline has passed and the league looks very different now. Plus we have a key player both on and off the field in the rise of women's soccer. It's Wednesday, August 2nd. I'm senior writer Owen Poindexter and this is Front Office Sports Today. Baseball's trade deadline is a time for teams to pick a lane, whether that's buy, sell, or hold, and there's some very interesting instances of all three. Joining me now to discuss is Front Office Sports newsletter co-author Eric Fisher. Welcome, Eric. Hello. Great to have you on this momentous of days. Yes. So um, let's let's start with with my beloved team, the New York Mets. Um, I'll give you my fans' take in a moment, but, but first, what, just give me your thoughts on the... Um, the the teardown that was. Yeah, I'm still a little floored by it all. Yes, it wasn't working. Yes, they were, as we're taping this, five games under 500 and well out of a playoff position. But this was Steve Allin Cohen here that, you know, record payroll, $344 million, blew any prior record out of the water, wanted to win the World Series in three to five years. Uh, even when all that evidence is very clear that it just it wasn't clicking um, for him to be as dramatic as this was. Uh, it's it's really startling, and there's a uh, I don't envy their salespeople right now because as they go back to market this winter to try to sell next year's season tickets and next year's sponsorships, I don't know how they do it. Uh, it's going to be a, a much harder conversation now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, 2024 is is not going to be, <laughs> yeah, it's not going to be easier to sell. It's probably not going to, you know, un- unless he just goes totally bananas and signs, you know, eight more pitchers this offseason. Um, you know, Otani, look- and we'll get to that. Otani's yeah. the thing that changes that conversation. Right. Yeah. And I, I think that's going to be a hard sell for him, too, because, right. you know, this, this looks like the Angels East right now. And we'll get to the Angels in a moment. I'll just say as a fan, I'm actually kind of thrilled because... This year was already, I had accepted that this was a disaster. And Steve Cohen still kind of did the Steve Cohen thing by saying, I'll pay most of Scherzer's salary. I'll pay most of Verlander's salary. Just give me the best guy you can give me for those guys. And they got some really good prospects. In baseball terms, it actually looks really good. Your point is very well taken. Yeah, yeah. So 25, 26, when we start seeing some of these guys pop up, assuming they actually pan out into something, you know, I'll I'll take it. Um, Let's get to the Angels. So, yeah, they had to pick a lane. Uh, Do you trade Otani or do you go for it in what is very likely Otani's last year on the team? They went for it. That also really surprises me uh, that we've had basically a decade here of, you know, the prime years of Mike Trout and the prime years of Shohei Otani and the Angels being the same mediocre team year after year after year. And there's a stacked wild card field ahead of them. Uh you got the Red Sox, you got the Astros, you've got the Rays, uh, you got the Blue Jays, uh, you know, the Yankees, if they ever can find a pulse here. There's a lot of teams that they got to, the Angels would have to sort of plow through to get that first playoff berth in nine years. Uh, you know, if you're an Angels fan, or and conversely, if you're selling Angels tickets and Angels sponsorships, life got a little better now because they, they did push in. Uh, it just given the the depth of the roster behind Otani, uh, you know, there it just doesn't strike me. There's a lot there, and uh, 
you know, the day after the Angels said that they were going to keep him and he had that phenomenal doubleheader with the one hitter and the two home runs, uh, you know, the other side, you know, you got the uh, uh, players screaming at the manager, why are you even pitching to this guy? And that's a very good question. Why are you still pitching to Shohei Otani? And uh, you would think that that would even be more of an issue going down the stretch here as they're trying to win games and he's not finding anything to uh, hit. So I think it's still a tough road to, uh, ahead for the Angels, uh, you know. But they've they've rolled the dice here, literally, as the, their GM said. Yeah, yeah, and you know, like it's maybe not the best move for the team's long term future, but it is your last time with this total unicorn magical player that we've never seen the likes of. So, you know, I, I credit them for saying like, yo, YOLO, let's, let's just try it. Um, and you have yo. to say that he's, he's going to be a free agent. And an important part of the calculus here is if they're going to make any sort of play to keep him long-term trading him now, I, I, it, yeah, having a boomerang situation. Yeah. It wasn't going to happen. So if you're going to keep him long-term in any scenario, he has to stay now. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I guess we'll stay in the AL. So, yeah, a few teams I want to get to here. Like, we'll stay in the AL West. The Texas yep. Rangers, they, I kind of think of them as the Mets that worked. I mean, they because they yeah. were spending not quite Steve Cohen levels. Even but after losing to Grom. Yeah, yeah, they lost to Grom. And, you know, before all that, they signed Marcus Semien to that huge deal, Corey Seager to the huge deal. Um, and, yeah, and they loaded up this uh, this past offseason with Eovaldi and John Gray and some other guys. And, yeah, now, and now they're all in with, with Scherzer and more. Yeah, Chris Young, uh, who runs their baseball ops there, used to work in the league office, former big league pitcher. A lot of people like him. He's got a lot of fans, and he's quietly built something uh, really nice there. And it's a lot of um, mid-tier talent that's really performing very well. You mentioned a lot of their big names, but that's a team with a remarkable amount of depth. And I give, again, credit to Chris Young and his staff. All right, hopping over to the AL East, we have... Possibly two of the two the two best teams, arguably in the American League. Um, certainly, two of the best teams in baseball, and maybe top five or six. The Orioles and Rays did basically nothing. Right, and this was a real moment uh, for the Orioles to really sort of push all in here. And they were supposedly in the mix for a little while on Verlander before he uh, did the Astro deal. Uh, this is a team number 29, the Orioles and payroll, uh, best record in the American League, really uh, outperforming expectations. You knew they were going to be better this year, but I thought what we're seeing now is maybe a year or two away. Everything's really clicking right now. And so this would have been the moment to really give that extra piece in both inside the clubhouse and in the stands um, for John Angelos to really say, uh, this this is the moment here, and he didn't do it. And that may be any number of reasons. We've talked a lot about Masson and what's going to happen long term with the the team. They're still trying to get a lease deal done, um, you know. So there's a little bit of concern there as to yes, things are going really great in Charm City right now, but what is the long term pathway? Yeah, I mean, it reminds me a bit of their off season when they they missed the playoffs by only a few games, and they have this young core, and they still didn't add anyone. Um, kind of the same thing, this trade deadline. Yeah, what I wonder is long-term, do they just want to be the Rays, where they're always just looking for long-term value and make very few short-term moves? But they can or, be more. They right, could right. Be they've more. been a big spending team in the past. And they've you got know. resources right now between their stadium and Masson that the Rays do not. Yeah, yeah, they do. And yeah, it'll be interesting to see if, if those get onto the field at some point. 
Eric Fisher, thanks so much for joining us. Always a pleasure. Up next, it is well known that the U.S. women's national team is the one to beat in this World Cup, though obviously it hasn't gone according to plan so far. And it's also well known that women's soccer is one of the biggest growth areas in all of global sports. Brianna Scurry was the starting goaltender for the USWNT that won Olympic gold in 1996 and the Women's World Cup in 1999. And she has been a key player in the growth of women's soccer, both on and off the field. And our conversation is next. Very excited to be joined now by two-time gold medalist and World Cup winner, Brianna Scurry. Welcome, Brianna. Hi, how are you? Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So you played on an international stage in the 90s when people in the U.S. were, were just starting to tune into soccer generally, and especially women's soccer. You probably played in some of the first games that a lot of people watched for, uh, you know, for the women's national team. Uh, what's it like for you, you know, watching this tournament and seeing how far women's soccer has come? Oh, it's fantastic to see the World Cup going on right now, uh, 32 teams in it, and the growth of women's soccer in the last 25 years has just been amazing. And I really appreciate and I feel grateful for being on a team that literally, in, in essence, you know, started that explosion from, from 99. I mean, we had a fantastic team and a great run in the 96 Olympic Games as well. We won gold there, but not a lot of people saw that game on TV because NBC refused to show it live. And so they showed it in pieces after the fact. Um, so the 99 World Cup was the first time that we were on full live display for the country and the world to see. And so now the amazing growth of the game is just phenomenal. Women's leagues all over the world and so many other countries now putting funding into their women's teams is really a testament to how far the game has come. Yeah. And I kind of feel that both the U.S. men's team and a lot of women's international teams are sort of driven by the success of the U.S. women's team. Obviously, that's not the only thing going on, but... There are a few things bigger than that. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> um, but, um, but, but, yeah, do, do you feel the same way that, um, that you know, starting with perhaps your teams um, and kind of going on through, you know, these, you know, Rapino and Morgan-led teams, um, that, that it's, it's driven a lot of this growth? Absolutely. I mean, I can, I can, you know, state many facts. I mean, one is Nike, who is now an international soccer brand making billions of dollars a quarter, first started their foray into soccer through the women's national team. I was one of the first five ever Nike sponsored soccer athletes in, in 1994. Um, they didn't have a ball or a shin guard or a glove or anything. And that's where they started their, their stroll into soccer was through the women's national team. And so, I mean, and now they're a billion dollar, multi-billion dollar brand all over the world, you know, clothing teams that are some of the most storied uh, clubs in the world. And so that started with us. Um, and then of course, all these other countries that are now putting funds into their women's teams who before, you know, cultures like in South America, uh, Europe, other teams in Europe, um, you know, uh, Asia as well. And I mean, now you have 32 teams in the World Cup and seven of those teams, uh, this is their first time. And so all these countries are now putting enough funding into their women's programs to to be able to qualify and then to, you know, send them to the World Cup and, and to show the world what they can do. And it's just, 
incredibly exciting. You know, I think our, our women's women's world cup in 99, um, showed everybody what was possible. And now they've, you know, grown over the last several world cups, the one in France in 19 and Canada in 2015, and now in Australia and New Zealand, the first ever major soccer tournament in that part of the world. So it's really exciting to see what's, what's coming about and, and what's uh, to come in, in the future. Yeah. And along those lines, the U.S. men's and women's teams are now splitting their winnings. Yes. Um, and yeah, I don't know of any other any other place where this is happening, really, in the sports world. Not um, yet. <laughs> yeah, not, right. Well, yeah, that's what I wanted to ask you about. Um, I mean, yeah, what's your reaction, first of all? But yeah, do you, do you see this being the, the start of a trend? I do. Um, so the only other sport that pays the men and the women equally before we got our equity deal was tennis. And that's only in the four major tournaments, um, U.S. Open, Australian Open, Wimbledon, and the French Open. And so they were able to achieve that over the course of decades with Billie Jean King um, beginning in the 70s. And then the Williams sisters basically, you know, uh, propositioning to Wimbledon, who was the last tournament to do it. And so that took many, many decades to get that done. And just like their situation, our situation took many decades as well. And ironically, Billie Jean King was a big part of that from the beginning when we went on strike in 20, you know, 2000, excuse me, not 2000, 1995. um, And early 96, before the Olympic games, myself and eight of my teammates went on strike over the other, the other, among the many things, um, the fee schedule that the Federation didn't want to pay except for if we won gold. And that was just ridiculous. Whereas they were going to give the men's team a bonus, whether they won gold, silver, or bronze. And so we went on strike and that was one of the first major steps publicly that the team had ever taken in, in the, in the name of equity. And then now recently, this, this just this last year, um, signing the deal in in you know and, and making that deal finally with one of my teammates, Cindy Parlacone as the president. I mean that's monumental, and so it's a great template for uh, cooperation. It's a great template for other countries to model, and it's also a great template not just for other countries but for other industries. Um, I think teams such as Australia, uh, France, England. Uh, Spain, uh, Netherlands, a lot of these teams could do a similar deal um, and and have equity for both the men's and women's teams. But obviously, these things take a long time. Yeah. And I also feel like there's more coordination across sports in women's sports. Um, And I think because, you know, there's a lot of the same issues you see in basketball and other sports. Um, Yeah, there's kind of no, no, I mean, the natural solidarity, but also a natural alliance that you see through through companies like Together, where you're bringing you know, women's athletes uh, from different sports to you know highlight and promote um, you know, just female athletes and, and the women's game make it, and make it more of a story that people are invested in. Absolutely. It, it's, it's, you know, women helping women. And when you have a journey you've gone on and a lot of the things that you've been able to do and other teams want to want to do the same and get the equity, it's hard to know where to start. You know what I mean? And so it's nice to collaborate and be helpful uh, to other teams. And we, we have been, I mean, our leadership group, including like Julie Foudy and, and Carla Overbeck and myself, we've, we've helped other teams in other sports, you know, understand what it takes. I mean, it takes a, a resolute, um, 
you know, amount of unity within your club and within your group to be able to pull this off because, you know, a lot of times the bluff is going to be called by the Federation, whatever country it is. And so you have to be willing to literally put your bum out there, you know? And I mean, you sometimes have to put your dreams on the line and that's what it takes. Switching gears a little, um, you invested in the NWSL team, the Washington Spirit. What made you want to be a part of that group? So, you know, I've been in the game for so long and the Spirit has been one of the flagship clubs from the very beginning, actually. The Washington Spirit used to be the Washington Freedom, which was in a franchise in the, in the WUSA, which is the first league that I played in, um, in 2001 to 2003. And then it was also in the second league, the WPS as the Washington freedom again. And then it was renamed the spirit for, um, in WSL. And so I felt like now that I lived in the area, I live in the DC area. Um, I wanted to be a part of the team. So I actually ended up coaching the team in 2018 for a season, um, did that, realized that that wasn't my cup of tea. Um, but at least I could say I tried and then, uh, ended up being an investor, uh, for late 2020. And that basically took me uh, full circle from being a player on a team to being a coach, then now to actually investing in the team and, uh, being a part of that ownership group, that investor group was really, a nice, uh, a nice way to, to top it off for me. And now, um, you know, the league is doing incredibly well. Um, it's moving ahead in a, in a positive way. The ownership groups that are in with teams now are very, very, uh, interested in growing the game. And that's really exciting. Yeah. And I'd love to get your, your take on the, the pay issue as someone who, you know, obviously you're a player now you're a part owner, Oh, um, you know, we're seeing, I mean, Ronaldo and uh, Karim Benzema are getting you know, absurd amounts of money in Saudi Arabia, but we're also seeing pretty absurd amounts of money in Europe. U.S. soccer is still a ways to go to catch up, uh, other, Lionel Messi being an obvious exception. Um, but, uh, you know, there's interest in growing the money on the women's game. And, you know, so those players can can get more money, at least to compete with the women's side in Europe and eventually to achieve something resembling parity with men, um, what are the challenges that you see to get there, you know, as, as someone who is now on, on the ownership side? Yeah, I mean, I, I, so when you talk about, you know, Benzema and Mbappe and Ronaldo and Messi, you're talking about generational talent. I mean, these guys are, I mean, Messi and Mbappe, I mean, Mbappe is in his 20s and he already is a world champion and then a runner up. And so when you talk about the big numbers, I mean, that is a one in a million talent. And so I don't expect that kind of number just to be flying around for anybody. Um, and those those players have really brought the game forward with their amazing talent and people watching it and being interested in it. And so they they get these huge numbers, especially from the, uh, you know, the league in Saudi, because they, they want to pay for the players to come and they will come over the top and pay a billion dollars. And it's no, you know what I mean? Because it's worth it to them. And so, so, but my, in my little pool of the, of the world with equity in soccer, um, you know, we, we are trying our best to make sure that if you play soccer in America at a high level, at the highest of levels, 
that you're making a, a you know an income where you don't have to feel like you have to take on another job at the same time. And that's what we're kind of, that's what we're dealing with. Like so many teams in, in the league still with the lower level players that are, they say, you know, between team player 15 to player 25, uh, they need to make an income where they don't feel like they have to kick on a second job in order to stay there because then you get that massive turnover. And so that's the kind of stuff we're talking about. It has to be a livable wage. And for a long time, it hasn't been. And so I feel like that's ridiculous because you're asking, you know, a hundred percent maximum effort and desire and passion in something, but you're not willing to pay for it. And that's what bothers me about it. And so I think what what leagues are, excuse me, what ownership groups are now doing, like Michelle Kang and the Longs out in, in Kansas City and other teams in Bay Area, you know, the new team there and, and, and Angel City, they're trying to supplement the income more so that no player has to feel like they can't just devote themselves to playing. Because you got to pay the bills. I mean, I don't care how much you desire you have. If you are, you know, unable to make your monthly nut, that's a problem. So, and it shouldn't be. So that's the kind of stuff I'm talking about. And I mean, these numbers are huge. um, But the cool thing about those huge numbers is the game is growing. And in this country in particular, a lot more people watch soccer on a weekly basis ever since the EPL has been on the national broadcasts here. And so I think that's really helped grow the game. And Messi is obviously breaking records left and right, and you knew he would. But I think the game here is going to go to a new level in the next three to five years, especially since we have the Olympics here and we also have the Men's World Cup here. And so we're we're moving along, and I'm, I'm excited about where things are going. Yeah, and, and because we're – you know, we can project that growth. You know, people seem pretty confident. Um, everyone I've talked to about this is is pretty confident that you know soccer is growing in the U.S. both for men and women. Um, does it make sense? I mean, and we're seeing these investments in in team purchases, but also in the league itself. Do you think that it makes sense to you know invest you know a little ahead of revenue, saying let let's really you know see the ground here for you know bigger growth down the road? Absolutely. I mean, women's soccer as a business is very, very attractive right now because the numbers are low enough that you can, as a company or corporation, whether you're international or national, get in on something that's fantastic, has a lot of goodwill, that has a huge growth potential. And if you, you know, use your dollars in a smart way, if you work with the league or the teams or whoever you've decided as a as a corporation to come in and partner with, you can see a really, really large, um, you know, dividend down the line because it's ground level right now. It's still ground level compared to putting your money in a different sport. Um, So soccer here is really at a great place. And I mean, it's growing, but it's gonna, it has so much more potential to grow, um, which seems odd because it's been around forever, but women's soccer is now seeing as a growth business. And I think that's something that's very new. Um, it's not just, you know, somebody's uncle has a daughter that plays, you know, and wanted to buy a team. Now it's like, okay, how can we grow this game? This is a business. And that's something that's very different. All right. Brian Scurry, thank you so much for joining us. 
All right. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. That's it for today. If you're enjoying the show, drop us a rating. It just takes a second and it helps other people find us. Thanks so much for listening. We will see you tomorrow.